Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Victoria Lepashko, one of the hosts of this channel. Today, we'll be talking to Gregory Smits about the new book, Maritime Ryukyu, from 1050 to 1650. And this book came out of University of Hawaii Press in 2019 and proposes a new way of thinking about Ryukyu. Instead of treating it as a natural, close cultural and political entity, The book conceptualizes it as a part of a maritime network extending from coastal Korea to the islands of Tsushima and Iki um, alongside the eastern shore of Kyushu and through the Ryukyu Arc to coastal China. The book takes a step away from conventional Ryukyuan histories and places Okinawa at their center, these Ryukyuan histories that is. And in doing so, we first learn about the northern island of Kikai as a starting point, and it draws the attention to customarily overlooked territories such as Kunejima and Tokara Islands. Moreover, the book underscores the rich and intricate relationship between islands, pirates, kingdoms, dynasties, and the natural environment from the 11th century to the 17th century in East Asia. This approach challenges long-standing approaches to Ryukyu and invites us to reevaluate extant historical, cultural, military, political, and economic accounts of the said region. So, Gregory Smith, welcome to the channel for your second interview for New Books in East Asian Studies. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, so, Greg, I wondered if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself, your background, and how you came to write about Ryukyu at the beginning of your academic career. All right. Well, I... Um was originally interested in Confucianism outside of China, so in, in Japan, Korea, and other places. And uh, it occurred to me that uh, uh, the Ryukyu kingdom might be an ideal study in Confucianism, particularly because um, uh, at least one prominent figure, a guy named Sion, uh, was motivated by uh, Confucianism to reinvent or attempt to, with, with, with different degrees of success, uh, attempt to recreate Ryukyuan society. So um, my first book was ultimately m- more than just a study in Confucianism, although that was part of, uh, of it. And so I gradually moved from an interest in Confucianism to an interest in the Ryukyu Islands and their history and culture and politics and so forth. That's very interesting. And, you know, it's, it describes an interesting arc in terms of research. Um, and you mentioned in the book, in Maritime Ryukyu, that you took a 10-year hiatus to work on earthquakes. Um, and then uh, you, re- you took up again this topic. So I was wondering how the hiatus informed this book or created new connections in your research that, you know, revamped the interest you initially had? Yes, yes. I, I think it's probably always beneficial... Uh, although I, I did not plan to do this, but it's always beneficial to take some time out and work on something completely different for a while. At least for, for me it is because that's just the way I am. I get tired of certain topics. So I had worked on earthquakes intensely for 10 years. I wrote five or six articles and two books, and I thought I would keep going and write a, a, a history of seismology. But as I was preparing to do that, I also began... Uh, to, to write a, a journalistic broad history of the Ryukyu Islands. I had been promising some presses that I would do this for many years. I thought, I'll just quickly write this book. How hard could it be? Uh, well, I thought before the, I start, however, I need to look at the early material. It doesn't seem to add up. The, offici- the, the, the survey histories in Japanese, they all say the same things. Um, the reigns of the kings look very peculiar. Um, things just don't seem to add up. It's, it's hard to imagine there could even have been a unified kingdom so far, so long in the past, say in the, in the 14th century or even the 15th. Uh, so as I looked and looked and looked, I realized that there's a whole 
book, actually several books to be written just about early Ryukyu, and that the, the survey histories are in many ways uh, quite misleading. So maritime Ryukyu is, among other things, a, a, a very substantial revisionist history. Right, yeah, and I think you mentioned that quite at the beginning in the introduction, and um, I think it comes up in the four parts of the book that, um, you know, cover discrete temporal categories, but they do overlap sometimes. And I think that overlapping suggests the interconnected nature of events that you're talking about, um, that, you know, by its own, um, you know, formation transgresses chronological neatness. So my question regards the internal logic of the chapters in each part, because in part one, there are five chapters, but then in part two, there are four, and, uh, you know, it kind of um, fluctuates. And, um, you know, what's the overarching thinking that organizes the book? Yes. Mm -hmm. Well, originally, I wrote it as uh, approximately 14 or 15 chapters, and I did attempt, I attempted to do two things, to follow uh, a fairly strict chronological sequence, uh, linear uh, narrative, and also uh, to keep all, each chapter approximately the same size. There's a certain symmetry to that, I guess. The result, however, was an essay consisting of approximately 12 chapters. In other words, one had to read from the beginning to the end in order uh, otherwise, you would get lost. And in fact, you would get lost in any case because there's no way that people can read an essay that that's, that's that long. So um, when I sent that to the press, uh, the outside re reviewers both uh, gently uh, suggested that this is simply too much of a burden on the reader. And in the meantime, time had passed. And so I, I thought, well, I will liberate myself from the need to write chapters of the same length. Some chapters are 10,000 words, some are three and a half thousand words. Whatever they need, need to be, they need to be. And uh, so I redesigned it so that each chapter could stand almost on its own. It's, it's still best to read from beginning to end in sequence, but each chapter can mostly stand on its own. And that is what uh, necessitated the, the rearrangement and also um, the, the fact that chapters and sections of the book uh, overlap in, in, uh, chronologically because the emphasis I, I, re, I put the emphasis on topics and themes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the um, the idea of the the pirates and legends uh, does come up in many many chapters, but then you know that's the overarching thread sometimes, and I'll ask about that later on. But just to to emphasize what you said, and also to um, segue into um, my next question, which. Uh, latches on the fact that you mentioned, and I'm quoting that, this is the first attempt in English to write a substantially new history of early Ryukyu, uh, while paying close and equal attention to the regional and global trends of analyzing uh, Ryukyu. So um, my question as I was going through the book um, had to do with um, this, this, this trend, right? Like these trends, uh, two of them specifically, and the impact uh, they have uh, on the new history that, uh, you know, you, you're writing. Yes. Mm -hmm. So um, I wish that uh, the, the, the ideas in my book were all original with me, but they're, they're not. They're, many of them, at least, are inspired by uh, some innovative works in Japanese. And uh, many of these works uh, come out of anthropology, uh, the most famous anthropologist is Tanigawa Kenichi, and he, uh, uh, for example, for, for years has written extensively about Ryukyu as well as everything else. And he's simply amazing at what he's always done. And he's somebody who has pointed out long ago, uh, when I look back in his writings, that uh, when, when we look at the Ryukyu Islands, we have to look at, among other things, uh, Wako. Uh, often translated as Japanese pirates, but and I'll call them pirates, but they're much more than pirates. We need to look at the, the movements and activities of Wako. Why on earth would Wako not be present in the Ryukyu Islands when they were present in all the rest of the islands of the East China Sea? Of course, they were in the Ryukyu Islands. Uh, <clears throat> another point that Tanigawa would emphasize uh, is that uh, there are close connections between uh, western shore of Kyushu and the Ryukyu Islands. Anigawa himself uh, was uh, from from Western Kyushu, and uh, 
<clears throat> so he's just one example of a number of uh, Japanese scholars. Um, Yoshi, a scholar named Yoshinari Naoki and uh, Fukuhiromi, those two, uh, uh, two scholars who bring to the table uh, backgrounds in history, anthropology, folklore studies, mythology studies, uh, quite a wide range between the two of them, wrote uh, several co-authored books, uh, one in 2006 and another, essentially the same book rewritten better in 2007, uh, on uh, the Ryukyu Islands, their geographic and cultural network extending all the way into continental Asia, uh, the role of Wako, and in particular, what they did was they took a collection of ancient songs, the Omoro Soshi, and better than any previous scholar made those, used those songs as clues uh, about where to, what to look for and where to look, and then reinforced, uh, and then, then dug into their topic by using anthropological, archaeological, and linguistic evidence, and uh, came up with a uh, all sorts of innovative ideas about early Ryukyu. I have used much, many of their findings and their ideas in my book, and I've also extended their approach uh, into uh, into other areas. It's really interesting that you mentioned other areas and anthropology and musicology and all of that because my next question was, um, you know, about interdisciplinarity, and um, you know, the book is it has an impressive array of materials and uh, it draws on different types of archives however you define it. And then um, I was wondering whether you could talk more about the choice, your own choice, regarding this type of interdisciplinarity in the results it yielded and in relation to, um, you know, the sources you consulted, the people you talked to, and, um, you know, the, maybe also the lack thereof of materials? Yes. Uh, well, <clears throat> one point that I emphasize in this book, and again, it's a point that, although it's a minority point of view, other others have it's not unique, it's not original with me, is that the main drivers of early Ryukyuan history were Wako, uh, maraud seafarers who were prone to marauding, although they also engaged in trade uh, and in diplomacy, and, and they were provided security forces, they sold horses, they did all sorts of things. Um, <clears throat> but these, these Wako were the main drivers of early Ryukyuan history. Moreover, the as far as all evidence points to that the, the early rulers, local rulers based in different harbors of the Ryukyu Islands were Wako or closely connected with Wako. Uh, and so uh, these people did not write anything down. They may have kept, had a scribe who kept a list of items in the storehouse, although even those, if they existed, are not extant. Um, they're people who did did not participate in uh, literary culture, as far as we can tell. They did have a rich auditory culture. Uh, in the Omoro Soshi songs, although written down initially in the 1530s and then later in the 16 teens and 20s, uh, were originally songs that were sung. And in these uh, Omoro, Omoro songs, you see the, you hear, well, you, you, you hear or read or whatever, the power of uh, the human voice. So, for example, a locally powerful ruler would be described as resounding and, and echoing. Uh, this person's power echoes throughout the harbors of the Ryukyu Islands, indeed, all the way up to Yamato was a typical way to emphasize that somebody was especially powerful. Um, the songs talk about singing songs to the deities. The songs talk about using the, the human voice and singing beautifully or powerfully to bring down rain. So uh, it, it, uh, the drum, for example, is the symbol of political authority. And so certain rulers are described as having beaten the drum, possessed the drum, or even made drums. And uh, so um, this, these songs really point to the, uh, an important point, and that is that these, these Wako and others who resided in the earlier Ryukyu Islands were not... Uh, people who had a literary culture, or they were not literate, and they did not leave behind written documents. So we have written documents that are uh, widely used in writing about early Ryukyu. The official Chinese records, the official Korean records, uh, official records of trade kept by uh, 
resident Chinese in the port of Naha, uh, the uh, um, lumped together now and known as the Rekidai Hoan. This is a very large collection of documents. And <clears throat> we also have some uh, accounts, very important accounts from Korean, often described as Korean castaways. Most likely there were Koreans who had been seized by uh, pirates and had been brought into, into the port of Naha uh, as part of the human trafficking that went through that port. And so these um, uh, Koreans, in some cases, wrote down accounts of what they saw in the Ryukyu Islands, and, and uh, those are a crucial part of our understanding of early Ryukyu. But so much is missing. There's just so little. All the written documents tend to be from outsiders looking in or, or from official sources. So <clears throat> what, what I tried to do, again, following the lead of some Japanese scholars, is to use archaeological evidence, anthropological evidence especially, and um, linguistic evidence, as well as literary evidence, for example, legends uh, and uh, uh, folklore and, and things like that, in lieu of traditional historical documents, at least until the 16th century. In the 16th century, for the first time, we start to... The, um, Ryukyuans begin to use written documents for domestic governance. We, in other words, we have tax records, records of official appointments, records telling us what the uh, ranks in government are and things like that. But before the 16th century, we don't have any of that. Um, and so it's necessary to fill in the gaps as much as possible using other kinds of evidence from other sources. Yeah, that's... Really, but that's a lot of work in itself, but it seems to be quite fascinating the ways in which, you know, orality and also the literary sources and, you know, um, all of these transnational connections that you're making come together to, to describe a network of connections or, um, as you call them, sea lanes. That yes. seems to be um, the focus of part one uh, of the book. Um, and then you talk about this network in which Ryukyu occupied a pivotal position. And um, I think this um, can be actually extrapolated to the entire book, the idea of the networks and how uh, the navigation and the science uh, behind that type of navigation. Um, so um, could you expand a little bit on the importance of this network from the 11th century to the 17th century? Yes. <clears throat> the nature of the network does change over time. Uh, but it, it's essential to, all right, let me back up and, and, and preface this with the, the traditional approach, which we, we see in perhaps 100% of the of this general histories of Ryukyu that you'd find in, in Japanese language. I have you know, 20 or 30 of them up on my shelf here. Uh, and they all pretty much start the same way in the, the, with the island of Okinawa and then particularly the Shurinaha area region within the island of Okinawa and this is the beginning it's always the beginning uh, Okinawa it's as if human beings like sprung up in the island of Okinawa and culture sprang up there and indeed that's that's the impression that the official histories of Ryukyu would like you to, to have the official histories were doc were written between approximately 1650 and 1750 with a, a few of them updated thereafter. And so they're written much later than the events that they discuss when they talk about the early Ryukyu kingdom emerging. They're written from a Shuri-centric perspective. In other words, Shuri, the capital of what becomes a very strong and powerful centralized capital of, a, of what essentially was an island net, uh, empire. Uh, and so there's a strong Shuri-centric uh, uh, narrative, and modern historians have just have largely replicated the uh, framework that the official histories created. Have tended to assume, well, of course, that's basically what happened. Of course, we have to modify it a little bit; we can't take it literally. But essentially, all the modern histories have replicated the framework of the official histories. So one thing that I uh, tried to do is to, is to set aside the official histories at least prior to the 16th century. Once we get into the 16th century, it does become possible to corroborate the official histories with other kinds of documents and evidence. And so I, I do use 
the official histories a little bit more um, as one potential source from the 16th century onward. But before the 16th century, if the official histories say something happened, say in 1250 or in 1300 or whatever, um, I assume, I take it uh, skeptically, I assume that that's inaccurate unless there's some other evidence uh, to, to back it up. Uh, and so one thing that we, well, just to be more specific, in 2006, uh, the Gusku site complex on Kikai, the island of Kikai in the northern Ryukyu Islands, was uh, first discovered. It attracted tremendous interest. It was quickly excavated, and we find that uh, this was a massive uh, center of international shipping activity. Uh, it was a center of technology, a center of trade. It seems to have had connections with parts of Japan, parts of Korea, uh, and the other two northern Ryukyu islands nearby it, uh, within sight of it is Amamioshima and also the island of Tokunoshima. These, these were sites of pottery production, for example. There was metalworking done on Kikai, uh, <clears throat> because there, among other things, there are metal sands on Kikai. And um, so this really changed the picture of early Ryukyuan history. Early Ryukyuan history simply did not start in Okinawa. At the time that the Gusuku site complex was thriving, say in the 11th and even the 12th century in uh, Kikai, uh, the island of Okinawa <clears throat> was a sparsely populated backwater. Eventually, for reasons I describe in the book that has to do with the shell trade and uh, and, and other things, uh, the island of Okinawa does surpass the other Ryukyuan islands as, as the center of economic activity, its population grows. Uh, and I should add that the population of all the Ryukyu islands is the, largely the result of waves of northerners, mostly from Japan, but also from Korea, coming into the islands uh, and displacing the very sparse local populations that had previously existed. So <clears throat> eventually, because of waves of migration and also because of the importance of the deep water harbor at Naha, which is the best harbor in all of the Ryukyu Islands, Okinawa does uh, surpass all the other Ryukyu Islands and becomes the, the true center so that by the time the official histories are written, uh, the, the, its authors can't imagine any other possibility. So one thing that I really want to stress is that Ryukyuan history begins in the north of the Ryukyu Islands, the very northern edge, uh, and uh, only later uh, does Okinawa emerge in, in prominence. Right, and I think that has also to do with the internal ruling of um, through the dynastic system of the Ryukyu, um, you know, that did play a role to a certain degree in, you know, dealing with these uh, migratory waves or with the, the commerce and, you know, the relationship with uh, the Ming dynasty, for example, or, uh, you know, with, with Korea at the time. So I think part two and three, it seems to me that it's challenging official uh, histories of dynastic rule in Ryukyu while still tending to this overarching claim um, of, uh, you know, how did Ryukyu come to be and, you know, the maybe a less emphasis that is played to, uh, towards Okinawa. Yes. Well, um, the, on the one hand, I try to keep in, I want the readers to keep in mind that Ryukyu, the Ryukyu Islands are always connected to this bigger network, the East, what I call the East China Sea uh, network. And <clears throat> I also want readers to keep in mind that the Ryukyu Islands as a whole are not a natural, cultural, or political community. Never have been, and in many ways are not, and maybe until the modern era. And even then, well, it's, it, it, it's complicated. But in any case, keep to, to sort of keep uh, a Keep these points in mind, and now let's look at the claims of the official histories about dynasties of rulers in the Ryukyu Islands, well, specifically in Okinawa, and the relationship to other Ryukyu Islands and to the Ming Dynasty and so forth. And I, I, I emphasize that this is all uh, highly problematic, what, what we see in the official histories. The official histories, for example, claim that kings emerge in Okinawa, sort of naturally emerge. They emerge in part because 
Minamoto Yoritomo, a famous warrior from Japan, comes down into the Ryukyu Islands and, and uh, uh, takes us his wife, the, the, the uh, sister of a local ruler, and they have a son who then becomes the first king. There's, there's that specific legendary aspect to the story. And it, incidentally, the Yoritomo legend is found all over the Ryukyu Islands and all over many other parts of, of Japan. Um, with a similar point that you know, this this guy basically just fathered children all over the place, and they all became local rulers of wherever they, they went. Um, so there's sort of you get that narrative in the official histories, but what they that's really not the main thing that they're after. What they're after is then to once we establish the start, then we want as much as possible to have nice, smooth, dynastic succession. Um, even in the official histories, it's not smooth. So you can, despite their attempts to make, smooth it out as much as possible. So one can imagine that on the ground in real life, it was incredibly complex. And, and indeed, um, you know, just to, to get to the, some of my conclusions quickly, um, the first show dynasty, we can, I guess we can use that term, but the, but we have to put maybe the word dynasty in quotation marks because it is, it is clear that at least some of the members of the dynasty were not relatives, were not biological relatives, not father or son. Uh, in other words, at least uh, uh, two or three, two for sure, and most likely three of these kings uh, were outsiders who came in and simply took over as king, uh, and later were just woven into a line of, of, of related uh, figures. The most problematic is Shou Taiku, the uh, second to the last king of the dynasty. The official histories cannot even agree on when he was born and who his father was and things like that. Um, but um, the, um, so, so the, the, these kings of the first Shou dynasty uh, were local rulers of the port of Naha. And that's the crucial thing. Whoever rules the port of Naha gets the title king. Now, we should keep in mind the title king is, uh, of course, is a Chinese title. It's not the title that, for example, the, Jap a Jap the Japanese uh, Muromachi shogunate would use when speaking, say, writing a, a note to the Ryukyuan kings. They would use the term Ryukyu Yononushi, or ruler of, ruler of Ryukyu. Um, <clears throat> and so this term king is a Chinese term and it is basically a license to trade with the Ming Dynasty, uh, first and foremost. Now, I've made that point sometimes to other scholars. They've said, "Wait, wait, wait! No, no! Didn't the uh, didn't the Ming Dynasty invest uh, the Ryukyuan kings formally?" And so, yes, investiture meaning that they recognized this person to be king. Well, that's essentially the same thing as say we're giving you a license to trade. Yes, we recognize you as the king, the one for uh, under whose name the trade is going to take place. Um, when the first ruler of the Naha area, a guy named Sato, at least that's what we think his name is, uh, first signed on to be the king of Okinawa or the king of Ryukyu in 1372, within five, six, seven years of that, uh, uh, Okinawa had sprouted two new kings. So there was a king of the north, the middle, and the south. It turns out there were some other Ming tributary states about the same time who also sprouted kings uh, as soon as they started relations with the Ming dynasty. As you can imagine, the more kings, the more tribute, the more profit for Ryukyu. Of course, tribute is the term, but it, the more tribute you give to the Ming dynasty, the more money you get from the Ming dynasty or the more benefits of various kinds. So in the Ryukyuan case, uh, until about 1420, the late 1420s, from, from about 1380 to 1427 or so, there were um, uh, three different kings, and one of those kings, the king of the south, um, <clears throat> even had various royal relatives, uncles typically, who would themselves send tribute to the Ming dynasty, which was actually outside the the rules, but uh, the Ming dynasty just kind of looked the other way, so we'll accept tribute from royal uncle so-and-so. All of his tribute from the northern, central, and southern kings and their various relatives all went through the port of Naha, and it was all handled by the same uh, Chinese, local resident Chinese, who took care of the paperwork, and 
some of the envoys in, in those official records uh, switched places. In other words, the envoy from the king of the south might be found later as a, from the central king uh, and vice versa. So uh, there was great interchangeability. Not, not only that, but the tribute missions from these various kings arrived in China typically at the same time. Uh, you, you might have a shipment of tribute from the king, the central king only, but then, then the next year there might be a, a shipment from the king of the south and the central king arriving at the same time on the same vessel. Uh, so <clears throat> to what extent these were really different territorial states is, is doubtful. This is the so-called three, uh, three principalities of three kingdoms era of the Ryukyu Islands. All the uh, survey histories assume, of course, they were, they were different states. They even will give you maps showing their boundaries. We have no idea where the boundaries were. And they'll often in small, it'll say something like a conceptual boundary or a hypothetical boundary. Uh, but uh, one of the things I argue is that these three principalities probably should be thought of as three different brand names of the Ryukyu Shipping Corporation or three different dummy corporations uh, or something like that. And it was probably a way to facilitate as much tribute as possible coming from local warlords who were Wako, in other words, potential pirates. And what the, what the Ming state is trying to do is to channel their potential lawless activity, smuggling or raiding, into lawful channels, i.e. tribute trade. And thus the Ming dynasty was, uh, uh, was allowed Ryukyu and kings to send tribute as many times as they wanted, and there could be as many Ryukyu and kings as we need to get the job done. And the local Chinese officials there in, in Naha apparently thought that this three king system, for the, at least for a while, that seemed to work, work for them. So uh, one of my arguments is that these were dummy corporations. Now that's getting a little bit, I'm getting a little bit off of your original question, but um, what I hope you'll, you'll see is that these kings and their dynasties uh, and lineages and so forth are high, very complicated matters, uh, and and um, uh, we have to we should take with a grain of salt everything essentially that we we, we hear in the official records about these early kings. Uh, I think that speaks to the way in which it's really hard to pin down one definition or one word that would define the Ryukyu, and you get to this in part four, uh, specifically the last chapter, chapter 16, when, um, you know, it's called many Ryukyus, and, you know, it can be Ryukyu as Shuri, as frontier, as an empire, as a theatrical state, or as an imaginary. And now it becomes uh, clearer that, you know, it's really hard to define in a vacuum, but it's also complicated to define um, this, you know, this entity or entities when you connect them to the changes in the world. And it seems that the, the changes in the, the Ming dynasty and also, you know, like natural changes impacted the way in which Ryukyu can be thought of. So, um, you know, these, you know, if you think about it as a frontier or as a, as a imaginary or, you know, an empire, um, I think... Each of these can spawn a book in themselves. Yes, indeed. Uh, yeah. But, um, you know, I'm keen to listen to you expand on these or, you know, more on Chapter 16 for that matter. Yes, yes. Well, there's actually quite a lot that you've uh, mentioned. Uh, let's take, uh, let, me, let me focus, and then if you want, if you, you can follow up with more. Sure. On, yeah. uh, let me focus on just what, how, how on earth do we define this word Ryukyu? Which we've all been, which we've been using thus far, without trying to even define it. Yes. Which is good because if we try, it's it's quite difficult. Uh, so I spend I spend uh, considerable space on that at the very beginning of the book by talking about the various definitions of Ryukyu, what it might mean geographically, uh, geologically, culturally, politically, and then at what time and when and, and so forth. Just to give a few examples. In all pre-modern written documents of Chinese or Japanese source, the word uh, Ryukyu or Ryocho uh, always refers to the island of Okinawa. Uh, it does not refer to the other Ryukyu islands, as we com would commonly use it uh, today. The, there, you might, uh, it might be Great Ryukyu or Main Ryukyu, 
to, to, to really focus on the island of Okinawa. And then sometimes you know, other islands near Okinawa would also be included somehow in this, this, this label of Ryukyu. But generally speaking, the word always meant the island of Okinawa. So you, you'll, we might find, for example, in household records from local officials in Amami Oshima, say, well, so-and-so uh, founded our lineage. He came from Shuri, and uh, he had various offspring, and they did this, and they did that. And then one of them, uh, and they prospered as local officials here in Amami Oshima, and then one of them even prospered as a local official in, in Ryukyu. That means he went back to Okinawa and had some kind of official post there. So this can be, this alone, this word Ryukyu can be a little bit uh, confuse, confusing. I use it as a term of convenience to, to cover the entire Ryukyu Islands without any um, presuppositions about what those islands were. At, and then that's what the book is about, is explain in many ways what they were, how they changed, and, and so forth. So in the end, uh, it was a nice way to reflect on the whole book is to, is to consider the issue of many Ryukyus. So we have the Ryukyu Islands, so from approximately Amami, Oshima, and Kikai, all the way down to Yonaguni. And Yonaguni, if you climb to a tall mountain and it's a clear day and you have good eyesight, you can see Taiwan from Yonaguni. So that's how far we get to, uh, close we get uh, to Taiwan. And the, this whole span of islands, if we superimposed it on mainland Japan, it would extend, so Kikai would be approximately, let's put Kikai in Tokyo, Yonoguni would be in Fukuoka, in Kyushu. So it's a vast expanse of, of territory. And so at the, in the end, we can look back and say, well, there, there were many Ryukyus. For example, we could say in some sense that Ryukyu, where does Ryukyu, Ryukyu start? Well, it starts with Kikai, as we've already explained with the, the Gusuku site group. And I make that point especially to emphasize that this, this it should not be an Okinawa-centric uh, uh, start, even though it will be an Okinawa-centric end. Uh, and then I go through and just look at a bunch of other uh, possibilities that have come up in the book. So, for example, Ryukyu as Naha. When the Ming court first appointed King Sato as king of Ryukyu, Sato was a guy who, was, his castle was in Urasoe, which is uh, a little bit north of Naha, and his the extent of his power was the Naha area. So this guy ruled the port of Naha. He became the king of Ryukyu because the port of Naha can accommodate large Chinese vessels. No other port can. And so uh, <clears throat> that's where all the trade began. And as, insofar as kings were those who were licensed to trade with China, then the king of Ryukyu was, in fact, whoever ruled the port of Naha. But then soon after this guy was appointed king, a bunch of other kings sprung up although they did all their trading through the port of Naha. And when the Chinese uh, uh, court wanted to send a message to the Ryukun kings, they just sent it to the, the central king who ruled Naha and assumed that the message would, would be transmitted to the other kings. Uh, but then eventually, so, so, so ruling the port of Naha gives somebody tremendous economic benefits. You get to trade with China. You might have to do it in cooperation with other people or whatever, but you, you're, you're really in a central position. And not only that, but you're centrally uh, located for trading with Korea. Because if you're a king in the Chinese system, you're also legit to go trade with Korea. And of course, the port of Naha is because of such good port for trading with China. It's also great for trading with, with merchants from Japan. So uh, this what seems to have happened is that the, through warfare, these kings or potential kings would, would do battle with each other, uh, and um, whoever controlled the port of Naha was, in, of course, in a, in a favored position, but this also made that person a target. And so the first Shou dynasty, or the era of the first Shou dynasty, again with the word dynasty in quotation marks, uh, was a time of constant warfare in which one uh, potential king knocks off another and knocks off another and so forth. This is why the king's reigns are so short and they're, they're almost always end violently. And even the official histories have to acknowledge that. It's very difficult for them to put that into a morally, you know, a morally, moral Confucian type of framework, but they'll, they'll, they'll point out some character flaw in one of them that causes him to, you know, to, to his reign to end. Uh, 
Uh, so uh, Naha is Ryukyu in this sort of sense. But then uh, one king who reigns for uh, almost 50 years, Shoshin, comes to the throne early. He has to kill a bunch of his relatives to get there, uh, the usual process. Uh, and uh, his mother essentially puts him on the throne as a young uh, child. And But eventually, and we, we this would be, we'd really love to know how, but we don't. Eventually, around the 1490s or so, he comes to he comes into his own. He becomes his own man, uh, and um, he begins to actually assert himself. And he's, he's he's obviously quite capable. And through warfare, mainly, but also possibly through other means, he begins to consolidate what becomes an empire. He he's the first king to rule all of the island of Okinawa. Exactly when it all comes under his rule, we don't know, but approximately 1500 to 1510 or so. In 1500, he launches a massive invasion of Yaeyama, and there's some subsequent fighting, but by the 15-teens, 20s at the latest, uh, he's firmly in control, or he's in control, nominally at least, and possibly firmly, of the, the southern Ryukyu Islands. We also see in household records for the first time uh, in the 15-teens and 20s, uh, we find agents of Shuri stationed in the northern Ryukyu Islands. We don't see any evidence of that earlier. So roughly from the late 1490s to the 1520s, this king, Shoshin, uh, brings all of the Ryukyu Islands under his control and uh, through warfare mainly, although once you've win enough battles, you can also you know, win people over by diplomacy. And as he's doing that, he also re, um, what you might call re, uh, retro, outfits his, his, the capital of Shuri, which is, has been where the royal castle has been, but he redesigns it in a, a much grander style. The Shuri castle takes on its current Chinese-style form from about the 1490s on. Earlier versions of the castle we know from Korean observations of Koreans who were in uh, the area where it was quite different uh, from, from the, the Chinese-style castle. That, it takes that form in the 1490s and it stays that way thereafter. Uh, there's a new religious hierarchy. There is a new protective deity of Ryukyu, uh, Benzai Ten, who's a very good deity for that purpose. Um, and um, there's a, uh, the, the high priestess, the Kikoi Ogimi, comes into existence in Shoshin's time. He's uh, initially would be Shoshin's sister. Uh, and <clears throat> new religious rituals come into existence during the reigns of Shoshin and his successor Shosei, all of which focus on the centrality of Shuri uh, and uh, reinforce the message that the king is not just a particularly powerful local ruler, but radically different from anybody else, far above and beyond the others. So materially, and ceremonially, and in every other way, Shuri becomes a strong center of a new of a Ryukyuan empire, or a Shuri empire, we might call it. Um, when I visited Amami Oshima a couple of years ago, and I walked into the used bookstore there, which would be the, lo the main center of scholarship, started talking to the owner of the used bookstore, and I said, well, you know, I'm working on the early Ryukyu kingdom, so, saying that to him in Japanese, you know, Ryukyu Okoku, and then I said, Say well, of course. What uh, it's probably more accurate to say the Shuri Empire, and his face really lit up because you know that that really spoke to him as someone you know, part of the em uh, outer part of the empire. Uh, so Ryukyu becomes Shuri, essentially Shuri. Uh, in in, for example, in, in written documents appointing local officials, it always says the the first sentence is by order of Shuri, and then you are hereby appointed this, that, and the other. Right? Um, <clears throat> but then. Overlapping with Ryukyu as Naha or as Shuri, the Ryukyu Islands as a whole are serving as a frontier region in which defeated warriors, criminals, adventurers, uh, uh, shipwrecked people even, uh, can wash into them and, and potentially start a new life. Often they didn't succeed or you know, they died in the process, but those who made it you know, could, could start a new life. And uh, so Ryukyu as a frontier, and Ryukyu, the Ryukyu Islands, in other words, function as a frontier region of Japan, mainly, 
to some extent, of Korea uh, for hundreds of years. And uh, you know, the, the, the basic culture of the islands is Japonic. The people who live there, northern people who've come in from Japan. Um, and so it's important to keep that in mind, too, that the Ryukyu Islands were a frontier region of Japan, much like if we take, say, the United States, as it is developing throughout time, the far western regions of the, of the continent were a frontier region. They eventually become part of the United States, just as the Ryukyu Islands become part of Japan. Uh, but for a while, there were a place that you could go to get outside of the United States, just as the Ryukyu Islands were a place you could go if you had trouble in Japan. For example, if you're if you're part of the Southern Court in the war between the Northern and Southern Court, and when the Southern Court is defeated, its naval forces were essentially the Wako, who were ravaging Korea. Many of them sailed down into uh, the Ryukyu Islands. In fact, one of them even became the first king of the, of the first Sho dynasty. So uh, Ryukyu is a frontier region in that sense. And that's a, that's, that's a point that I really like to emphasize in the book because of this tendency to ignore the Japonic roots of Ryukyu, and, and to focus on its relations with China, and, and even to imply that in some sense the Ryukyu Islands were Chinese territory. Insofar as anyone says that today, well, insofar as people in China say that today, that's just a, it's essentially a, a statement of China's rising power in the world, uh, not a statement of historical reality. I also like to point out that Ryukyu was an empire, not always, but from about 1510 or 1520 onward, um, we, we use this term Ryukyu Kingdom. Well, we use it, but I rarely use it in this book. I explicitly say I want to avoid that term. I used it in my previous writings, often, just like everybody does. But it struck me that this is somewhat misleading, because by the time it's a kingdom in the sense that there's a central monarch who controls all of Okinawa or all of Ryukyu, it's not so much a it is a kingdom, of course, but it more so, more specifically, more accurately, it's an empire. And I make arguments in the book to explain why what we should indeed regard it as an empire. And indeed, there were many rebellions from these other Ryukyu Islands. They might get conquered at one point, and they stop paying taxes, and they have to be reconquered, and in some cases conquered a third time. Many of them did not like having to pay surety taxes. Strangely enough, I wonder why. Um, and so um, Ryukyu was an empire, and indeed it was a restive empire, one that needed to be held together by military force. And it's also a theatrical state. Even in this early period, all the more so in later periods in the early modern era, um, in other words, uh, Ryukyu and kings typically had to pretend that they were indeed members of a, cons of a lineage that went all the way through. When one king would take over from another, it would present itself, especially to China, as the son of that king, even though <laughs> in some cases we know for sure their ages were completely different. So we'd have to have like uh, move faster than the speed of light or something for this uh, to have happened. Uh, and, but not only that, but in so many other ways uh, that the, the kings of Yuki would pose in a certain manner, vis-a-vis -vis the, the rest of the East Asian world, uh, and often making themselves look much uh, loftier than, than they really were. But this fiction was very useful for all sorts of, to facilitate trade. Um, for example, the Ming maritime prohibitions, which I haven't mentioned yet. I mean, if you look at that, the letter of the law, this is quite serious. There will be no international trade. How could you possibly have no international trade. Well, of course, one answer is, well, there was smuggling, and there certainly was. But another uh, way out is for the Ming court to give its used naval ships, the ships that are going to start needing more repairs and, and so forth, not so useful as military vessels anymore, give them to Ryukyu, the king of Ryukyu. All right, well, we don't mean we're just going to send those ships over and say, here, they're yours. We'll send them over with Chinese captains, pilots, and the top echelon of officers are Chinese. Uh, and then we'll, we'll pick up Ryukyuans in Naha as ordinary sailors and then use these ships. Uh, these ships will then send tribute from Naha to the main court uh, via Fuzhou. Uh, but then from Fuzhou, they'll sail down to Southeast Asia or to other parts uh, of South or, or Asia or elsewhere in the Ming world and conduct trade. 
And then that some of those trade goods will come, most of them will come back to China. So all this is being done under the auspices of a Ryukyuan vessel, uh, which is under the auspices of a Ryukyuan king, but it's actually being done by Chinese pilots, Chinese captains, Chinese interpreters, and with Ryukyuan serving as the, the, the raw labor, you know, the people who raise the sails and, and clean the decks and things like that. It's not until the 1580s that we see an actual Ryukyuan as the captain of a Ryukyuan vessel sailing to China. Yeah, so that's, <laughs> that, is it, yeah, uh, 1580s, yeah, yeah. Now, that might have happened sooner because our records are, are kind of sketchy, but, uh, yeah, that, that's quite late in the game. So um, uh, Ryukyu served as a shipping corporation in this sense for the Ming Dynasty, circumventing its own uh, maritime prohibitions, but doing it in a way that was under control of the Ming Dynasty, at least for the most part. These Ryukyuan sailors actually caused lots of trouble uh, <laughs> wherever they went, including in China. The, um, the Then the... the the port of Naha also served as this shipping corporation for, uh, for, for some entities vis-a-vis uh, -vis Japan. But in this, but particularly with respect to the Ming Dynasty, we, what we see is, is Ryukyu as this kind of dummy corporation. Um, but it's, we can also call it a theatrical state. It's, ha it's acting like a, a kingdom uh, of, some, of some, some substance, when in fact it's, 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 it's more like... Uh, a, 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 a deep water port that is perfectly located for uh, trade of various kinds, including pirate activities, and uh, uh, it's it's serving as a shipping corporation for the Ming Dynasty. And then, sorry, uh, then the imaginary, and which is to say that in later times, later times in history, and also in the present, the modern era and present day. People love to imagine all sorts of things about Ryukyu. I don't. This, there's. I will, if I live long enough, write a book about this. I hope, uh, and so, and most of which strikes me as bizarre. Uh, and and a, uh, but uh, one just to, to give one example uh, that I mentioned in the book, and I've written about in my in the past quite a lot, is this idea that Ryukyu was a peaceful island paradise, a kind of pacifist paradise, just floating on the on these beautiful tropical uh, seas, these, these uh, islands, almost, almost magical or enchanted islands, unlike anywhere else in East Asia where people were running around killing each other and having wars and fighting over things. Um, in Ryukyu, everybody was peaceful, and uh, they, they managed to get, get along with all their neighbors, their other countries. They didn't have any weapons. They didn't need any weapons. They didn't even have any laws or coercive penalties or, this is the most absurd nonsense. I mean, the, the first look at any of these uh, in the written sources or anything else, uh, or all the weapons that have been dug up in uh, archaeological excavations, or you know, <laughs> the cannonballs all you know, in the harp in the in Naha Harbor, etc. I mean, it's just it's just absurd, and yet it's incredibly powerful to this day. Uh, and I've documented in some of my articles you know, that you know, people giving speeches about this, government officials in from Okinawa. You know people's websites and books and etc. So that's one uh, imaginary version of Ryukyu that uh, perhaps the most bizarre in the sense that it's so far from the the the, the, the factual evidence that we have. Yeah, I think the imaginary is quite uh, quite varied, but I think um, what you mentioned regarding um, these ways of seeing Ryukyu brings us back. To, well, brings us to the present day, and um, I think. Uh, the book raises questions to present-day Japan's relationship to Ryukyu, and it also pro problematizes at the same time the ways in which islands are laid claims on by political national entities. Um, and I think, you know, we, we could spend a few minutes talking about that. Yes, yeah. yes. Um, although in, my, in, in Maritime Ryukyu, I did not discuss that matter, partly because it deserves its own book, and in some ways Maritime Ryukyu is one of several books I hope to write that will lay the foundation for a more informed discussion of that matter. It is, it, it's, it's worth mentioning for sure. Um, and the, we, we get, a, a, I think, a skewed version of things because we, the, the voice of activists, of academics in general, and then a, particularly of activist academics, uh, tends to 
uh, come through in, of course, academic literature, but also in popular and journalistic literature. Where does a journalist who doesn't know anything about the history of this place turn to? An activist who is happy to tell you uh, this, that, or the other. And uh, I've often, in fact, I've had some clashes with colleagues even here at Penn State, and as well as elsewhere, who they may be familiar with uh, Japan, but they, they then they assume that, well, Ryukyu is some strange uh, other place uh, with some kind of entirely different logic and, and so forth. And I said, well, no, uh, it's uh, to, Okinawa today is pretty much like anywhere else in Japan. Now, every region has its own different characteristics in the sense that certain yeah, you know, there'll be you know, some small differences, but but you, you know, if you grew up in Hokkaido in in Japan, the northernmost island, and then you were tra- well, and this is not even hy- hypothetical. I met and spent a long time touring salt marshes or mangrove swamps with a woman who uh, came from Hokkaido and is now a nature guide in uh, Amami Oshima. Uh, but uh, yeah, there, there's simply no this is no problem. This is totally easy. Um, it's the same country and the same basic culture would be as if you grew up in Maine and then you moved to Arkansas. In fact, it might even be much more of a cultural shift in that case. <laughs> um, given, uh, yeah. But in, in any case, uh, today's, in today's Japan, the people who live in the Ryukyu Islands are, for the overwhelming most part, okay, with a very few exceptions, unproblematically Japanese they would not, cannot imagine themselves as anything else, and they think it is bizarre when um, scholar activists come. In, insofar as they even ever have this encounter, this which they usually don't, but insofar as they do, they, they think it's bizarre or insulting or or something like that uh, when someone comes along and suggests that that they aren't. Uh, indeed, you know, people who have a sort of a long family memory will recall their maybe their grandparents or great grandparents suffering severely from this very sort of uh, mentality, and 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 so um, it, that's one point I would emphasize: the Ryukyu Islands, the deep culture of the Ryukyu Islands is Japonic, Japanese. Uh, Ryukyu languages are all Japonic, obviously so, even if you don't know much about linguistics, but. Certainly certified many times over by linguists. Now, the details of exactly when this language differed, diverged from that one, and so forth, is, and, and where Proto Ryukyuan uh, ex- uh, emerged in Japan. There's different explanations, parts of Kyushu and also southern Honshu, and based on other things. But, but the base, you know, the, the Ryukyuan languages are all Japonic. Every aspect of Ryukyuan culture is, is, is Japonic, all the way down to Yonaguni. Uh, and <clears throat> so, uh, although the the there it was a very traumatic uh, transition in the 1880s, 90s, early part of the 20th century when the Ryukyu Kingdom was annexed by Japan, and there are reasons for that uh, traumatic uh, annexation process and and the making of the uh, the residents of the Ryukyu Islands into Japanese citizens. Um, uh, reasons that are just so complex, I won't go into them here unless maybe one of them becomes relevant. Uh, but that's again another book that I that I hope to write. So there, there's this very traumatic um, process of assimilation, but that happened, and it happened some time ago now, and 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 it's a done thing. So uh, you will find virtually nobody in the Ryukyu Islands who says, "Oh well, we'd like to be independent of Japan." That's they're oppressive or something. Now you will find a lot of people in the Ryukyu Islands who want the U.S. military bases to be located more evenly throughout Japan, or ideally just to be gone, or or something like that. Although not as many as you might think. There there are plenty who know that they they have an economic, uh, you know, a positive economic impact and so forth. Again, on the ground, it's it's much more nuanced. So the U.S. bases, yes, people would like to see that, but that's. That doesn't mean that therefore they're anti-Japanese or they think that they, they should be uh, uh, Yuku should be a, something separate uh, from Japan. You can find a few scholars who will tell you that, both in Japan and, and elsewhere. But it's a, even there, it's a very small minority of the academic community. I would like at some point, again, so I live long enough to um, immerse myself in that scholarship. It's a fairly small group of people, and they all tend to write with each other in mind, 
and 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 then engage that in what would certainly be a critical uh, book. So with that in mind, and because we've taken up a lot of your time, um, I'm curious to know what you're working on right now. All right. So in some ways, I think many uh, people, well, at least editor, press editors would like me to jump up to modern times as quickly as possible, like the 1870s and, and beyond. And that's in the plans, but there's so much more to do in the early uh, history, in, including the, the very early history. So um, I have several uh, book projects going. Let me uh, just mention two possibilities, two that, that are, you know, are going to happen. For, well, one is essentially a follow-up to the current book. There's so much that didn't make it into this book, and there's so many. I raised many questions in this book, some of which I have already answered, some of which I'm still working on, some of which I may never be able to answer because they're just difficult questions. But uh, so I have planned a 15-chapter follow-on book, tentatively called "Classical Ryukyuan Culture and Society." It's a broad title that just and it allows me to to work on a, a number of things. But among other things, I want to take the cultural evidence that um, I've been using as in lieu of historical documents in the current book and to actually treat it on its own terms and, and analyze it. Uh, for example, the, the legends. It's really fascinating when we, when we categorize the legends that we find in the Ryukyu Islands and look at the major motifs, look at the connections to similar legends in Japan and just kind of get all that stuff organized. So I hope to, I plan to have several chapters on legends all of which will shed light on some of the content and points in the current Maritime Ryukyu book, but will also go beyond that and, and, and make contributions to, to cultural and literary studies. So there's an immediate follow-up. I also plan to write uh, at least one, if not more, histories from a local perspective, a non-shooty local perspective. So in other words, what would a history of the Ryukyu Islands, islands look like from the perspective of Amagi, which is one of the three uh, towns in, um, in Tokunoshima. When I went to Tokunoshima, I was standing outside waiting for the bus. There's not many buses there, so I was waiting outside. Some guy came up and offered to give me a ride, and we started talking. And he gave me his massive book on the history of Amagi, Ch uh, Amagi Cho, Amagi Town. He said, I'm, I had this book for a long time. I'm never going to read it here. It's better in your hands. And this thing would cost hundreds of dollars in the U.S. bookstore. I'm looking through this, and it's got it's a complete, thorough, detailed, and amazingly well done history of the entire Ryukyu Islands and beyond, but always from the perspective of Amagi Cho, Amagi Town. And and I, I realized just from leafing through the book and looking at at the categories and some of the material that what would happen if we wrote a history of the Ryukyu Islands from this particular point. Or maybe uh, not to be so esoteric, but from several such particular points, but all of them outside of Shuri. Uh, and so because I, I tend to know more about the northern Ryukyu Islands than the southern in terms of this kind of deep material, uh, and I've got a, a much better source base built up uh, for that, the archive is right over here on these shelves, um, then uh, I think that's going to be a near future book, is a, a history of the northern Ryukyu Islands, but with this sort of um, uh, focus I'll take three or four different points within those northern Ryukyu Islands as my as my focus. And I think we'll be able to see very interesting and important things about the region uh, by leaving Shuri as... I mean, Shuri's still going to become important in the story, but as an outside force, we're going to be looking at it from the outside. And another, uh, yet another uh, possibility is an environmental history of the Ryukyu Islands. Because... As you've already uh, suggested, throughout maritime review queue, we see the importance of technology and the harsh environment and how people dealt with it, and what implications that environment had for people's lives. And um, that story, there's more, much more to say about that for early review queue and for the early modern era, from the, the era of the 17th, 18th, and 19th century, when the Ryukyu Islands are actually cut off from Japan. Uh, and are largely on their own. And how do the people survive? Well, they leverage technology uh, and uh, agriculture, uh, medicine, uh, shipbuilding, navigation, things like that. So uh, 
that's yet another book that I hope to write in the reasonably near future. Now we're getting several years out at this point. <laughs> I could go on and on about the others, but I think this is, gives you an idea that I'm, I've got a lot to do still on this topic. Sure, and this is all fascinating. And, you know, as with the, the book Maritime Ryukyu, I think this interview can only scrape the surface uh, in terms of details and also about the unfolding argument. But as a closing remark, I was thinking whether there's something else that we didn't mention and you would definitely want to want to suggest here. I don't think I, th I think we've actually this is this is a very good uh, stopping point. There's so many other details that we could get into, but once we start getting into them, you'll pr I probably won't be able to stop myself from talking about them. So I just uh, I know this may sound like a shameless uh, 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 you know, sales pitch, but I would urge readers to get a copy of the book, not to buy it, and get it from your library, or at least get your library to buy it, and and read through the book yourself, and uh, and you'll see that there's that indeed this interview has just scratched the surface of this fascinating topic. Oh, I definitely concur, and I want to thank you very much for taking the time to speak with us, and best of luck with the new project. Oh, thank you very much.